Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. As you know, we started The Nuanced Life as an outgrowth of pantsuit politics because you can't really talk about politics without talking about your values, and we try to do that in a deeper way here on The Nuanced Life. We have written a book about having grace-filled political dialogue. It is called I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversation. If you would like to stay in touch on all things related to this book and all of the fun activities that are going to be happening around the book, please go to pantsuitpoliticsshow.com and make sure that you are on our email list because that's where we'll be sharing all kinds of pre-order bonuses and information about where we will be talking about the book and when the book will be available and where. So stay in touch with us on our Pantsuit Politics email if you are interested in our book. So today we're going to do another feedback palooza. We love feedback paloozas. I do love feedback palooza. First of all, we have this this new first segment commemorating the usually uncommemorated, the big important stages in our life that aren't getting married, having a baby, or retiring. (laughs) Um, We're trying to commemorate here on The Nuance Life, and you guys have been sending in some excellent commemorations, so we'll start with that today. First, we're going to hear from Beth, not me about her twins' last day of daycare. Her twins turn four in August. They will be going to junior kindergarten in September. She said, where we live in Canada, we have two years of kindergarten, junior for four-year-olds and senior for five-year-olds. Side note, good idea, I want to do that. Good idea, I want to import that from Canada, please. Thank you. Please and thank you. So here's what Beth says. I'm currently on maternity leave with my youngest, who just turned six months old. I'm taking 18 months, so thankful that's an option for me as a Canadian. Another side note, good idea, Canada. And I get to spend the whole summer with all three. We're taking our first family vacation to Hilton Head, South Carolina in August. I will have been there just a week before you, Beth, I think. And we have other smaller activities planned. I'm slightly nervous at being with them all the time. I'm a huge introvert. But the last month, my baby has started to hit my favorite baby stage. He can almost sit up. He's starting to eat solids and has stopped nursing every two hours. He can go on a walk in the stroller and not fall asleep and wreck his naps. And my twins are just such fun, fascinating tiny humans. It will be busy and exhausting, but also so joyful. I love a baby like that. I like a baby who can sit up and play, but not crawl. Look, That is the sweet spot. Nine months old, the ninth month of life is a really good month. I just feel like when your baby hits nine months, all the things are clicking. You get the smiles and the sitting, but not the disastrous parts. It's like you have a little person finally, but not a little autonomous person. It's great. Yeah. Yep. I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Mine are really late walkers, too. I feel for those pay- people who have walkers at nine months old. Yeah. That's a serious right there. That's Mine unfair. don't walk for like 16 months. Yeah. It's really unfair. Y'all should commemorate that. Y'all should <laughs> buy yourself a nice present if you have nine-month-old walkers. Yes. Well, congratulations to Beth and her twins. And I hope your family loves Hilton Head, which is one of my favorite places on earth. Please do a dolphin tour with the Zodiac boats because they're amazing. 
So we have another commemoration from Miriam. She says, I just wanted to reach out and share my commemorative moment this week. This past weekend on June 23rd, 2018, I attended my 20th high school reunion for Garfield High School in Seattle, Washington. In the years since attending high school, I often reflected on my four years as some of the best I've experienced in my lifetime. My class was over 450 students. We were compromised of many different races, ethnicities, religions, socioeconomic backgrounds, you name it, we had it. There was an openness I gained from experiencing life with these other teens. I often mourn that my own children will probably not have the experiences that I did. Yes, they will have their own, but I know how rich my experience was and I yearn for that for them. I was the fourth generation to graduate from this high school. Me too, Marion. That's an awesome thing too. And each generation has always reflected on how wonderful the experience was. I attended the 10-year reunion. It was wonderful in its own way, but by 20 years, there was no longer any life competition. We were all mostly settled in our careers and moved on from those that we were doing 10 years ago into something that is more us. Many of us now have children, been married for a decade or more, own homes, paid down school debt. We are adults now approaching our 40s with the wisdom of some life under our belts. I don't think I have hugged this many people, joyously asked, how are you? And waited excitedly for the response. Some of us have lost parents. Some of us just sound like our parents. Many of us just keep saying over and over again, this is surreal. Needless to say, many of us decided we weren't waiting another 10 years. We'll be lucky to wait only five years before getting together again. Just wanted to share this with you ladies this week. There have been constantly friends sharing their photos from the weekend and just saying how much connecting this past weekend filled our cups. I love that, especially because my 20th reunion is next year. We already started playing and I'm so excited. I just think that such a fun celebration. Good for you, Miriam. Good for you, Miriam. This is from Lisa. Hi, Beth and Sarah. The last six weeks have had two great transitions that are worthy of note. The first is that my brother died unexpectedly on May 22nd. He was 60, and I miss him deeply. Our parents are both long gone. We were the only two siblings, and both of us were childless, so it is a strange passage to realize you're the last of a line. Second, on June 7th, I received my doctoral degree in media psychology after six and a half years of hard labor. I remember contemplating whether or not to start a degree at 47 years of age, but a trusted friend said, you're going to see 50 no matter what. The question is whether or not you want to see it as a doctor. I'm so glad I listened to her. In September, I'm going to celebrate my degree and my brother's life by lighting a lantern at the Water Lantern Festival in South El Monte, California. Sending the lamp out onto the water is a small way of marking the life and learning bring to the world. Keep celebrating transitions. It means so much to those of us who have made life choices taking us in directions not traditionally acknowledged as significant. God bless. Lisa, we send our sincerest condolences on the death of your brother and our sincerest congratulations on this remarkable achievement and also on having a friend who says to you things like, you're going to see 50 no matter what. Do you want to see it as a doctor? I think that's amazing. And this is a beautiful message. Thank you for sharing it with us. Also, I'm kind of jealous. Media psychology sounds awesome and something I definitely would have like majored in had I not an option. That sounds Killer. We get a lot of wonderful messages from Lisa, and I always think you and Lisa are cut from the same cloth, Sarah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Me and Lisa. I'm th- I just I think that's an awesome specialty. It's just something that is a thing I could talk about all day, every day. So we also got a commemoration from Amanda. She says, I'm writing to share a sh- couple of commemorations with you guys. First, I'm celebrating and also mourning my exit from the baby toddler stage of parenting. My youngest child is four, so I'm also creeping closer to being out of the little kid stage as well. Last year was the first year that all of my children were in school, so I have had much more time to get things done during the day I work at home. This phase is so significant that I'm surprised there doesn't seem to be that much discussion about it. As much as I feel a profound sense of sadness and loss, I almost feel like I've experienced a rebirth in the sense that so much of the constant focus on my little kids have shifted, and now I'm finally able to focus more on myself and pursuing new hobbies and passions. Of course, it is sad to know that I'll never have little babies again, but in a sense, I feel like I am rediscovering my identity in a whole new way. I also have a much lighter and more random commemoration, but I think one Sarah will appreciate. I visited Paducah for the first time last month. I made not one, but two trips in the last few weeks, and will be going back there three more times over the next six months due to having several appointments with a dental specialist there. I really enjoyed my visits. I have to say I was highly impressed. There's so much to do, yet it still has that small town feel. I also have a strong attachment to my hometown, so I doubt I will ever move. But if I do, I could totally see myself living there. Oh, Amanda. Just right to my heart, girl. Right to my heart. Also, I should say that another longtime listener... Berta came with her family from Taiwan. Okay, so like she didn't fly from Taiwan to come to Paducah, so I don't really want to over-exaggerate here. But she was going through, she's a college counselor, and she was going through all these different college towns. She started in St. Louis. She's going to Memphis and Jackson and New Orleans, all these places. And so she stopped in uh, Paducah for July 4th, and we just gave her 
full Americana. Blueberry picking, fireworks with the river boats in the river. We did farm to table food. We did putt, they did putt putt golf and carriage rides. They went to the quilt museum. They came to a barbecue. My generous friend Ashley invited them to it. We had so much fun. And I just really feel like Paducah showed out for Amanda and Berta. And I'm just so proud. Happy birthday, Berta, by the way. I noted that she celebrated her birthday while she was with you. I think Amanda is totally right about how it seems like there should be something when your last child is out of diapers, you Mm. know, to kind of take a pause and reflect on the chapter of little, little kids that has closed for you. Because it is an intense thing to have little, little kids. It is intense. And it's like, it is so bittersweet. Like, I'm I'm right with Amanda. Felix is almost four. He's three and a half. And it's just really hard for me because I really love babies. Don't love toddlers. But I do love babies. And knowing that, like, you're done with that stage and knowing that you're just getting ever closer to them being totally independent. And I think it's hard, too, because I tell people, like, with kids – Like, little kids are exhausting, but with, like, bigger kids, the stakes get higher, but you have less control over them, (laughs) which is very stressful. And it is. It's just a hard thing to think about, which I just want to say also, I think is what Belle, the little vignette at the beginning of Incredibles, was getting to. I have to share, since we're on the subject of these transitions and mothering and um, Berta, because she talked about... Um, they went to see, they went to the drive-in while they were in Paducah as well. And they saw about, and I wanted to hear her thoughts on it because I've been here. Have you been reading all the things, um, particularly from um, Asian Americans about how this really touches on a lot of Asian family culture? I thought this was also interesting. She also said, I thought it was a really good film about the parent-child relationship, especially generational cultural conflicts. The mom loves her son so much, wants to protect them, although it's really impossible to do that as parents and let them thrive as individuals, and also doesn't know how to express her love in words. I think that's just, it's all the things, all the things, that transition. And I just really feel like it's bittersweet, just like that little vignette. Just had to bring it up one more time because I love it so much. Yeah, I've thought not at all about that vignette since we first discussed it. But (laughs) I think that um, I I wonder— If having some cultural ways that we mark the change for us as parents as our kids reach these different developmental stages, I wonder if that would help with that feeling. I wonder Mm -hmm. also if it would lessen our need to be sort of competitive with each other about whose life is harder. Because one thing I really hate that we do to each other as parents is talk about like, oh, just you wait. Like you think it gets easier, but no, 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 just you wait. Or... You know, that stage is so easy compared to this stage. Like, no, it is all difficult. It's all difficult in its own flavor of difficulty. It's intense in its own flavor of intensity. And I just wonder if we had some acknowledgments that your life really changes when your kid gets a driver's license. Your life, not just the kid's life, not just go plan the Sweet 16 party or whatever, but your experience as a parent is markedly different based on the stage your child is in. I just wonder if really commemorating those things in community would ease some of the tension between parents and between and among parents. And I think it would help ourselves too. Like I just think like acknowledging the close of a season and the opening of another season and letting go of this uh, like sort of I feel like particular American perspective that like life is linear and you just march through and it's not about sort of the ebb and flow. We're really just trying to perfect everything and get it right and make the right choices. And we're like the things that sort of are static once you figured them out. And I just think like if we could release some of that and and sort of surf the waves of these different seasons and give people a space to be like, I'm sad this is over, even though it was hard. I'm sad this was over. I really, even though taking care of these little people was so difficult and physically exhausting, it is also an intensely and physically rewarding experience just um, to watch. They grow so fast and you get to watch them grow. And there's just like a totally excessive amount of cuddling that is fantastic. And just all that, I wish if there was a sort of a space for us to talk about that, I think that would make that transition a little easier. So thanks, Amanda, for giving us a space to talk, to talk about that a little bit. I have one more thing to say about that, too. It also might give us language to distinguish between 
what experience belongs to us as a parent versus what experience belongs to the child. Because I think we mess each other up when we don't acknowledge which is which. Like Mm -hmm. the, the problem sometimes comes in when a parent believes that the experience they're having as a parent is also the child's experience of a thing. Yeah. And so if we had some rituals, markers, whatever, that were just about the experience of parenting, maybe we would do a better job of realizing the things that are really just about the child's experience. Yeah, we. I got a really powerful message from a listener who said, like, I appreciate you working on your attachment and I, I, I hear your effort and it makes me feel a lot better because some of it's hard to listen to because I had a parent who made everything that I did about them and it. we don't really have a relationship now because of that. Like, it was an exhausting and all-consuming and really suffocating experience as a child to have the parent make everything about them. The thing that I think about the most, like the most potent illustrator for me of that was like watching kids go to kindergarten Mm. and seeing how the parents who were like, high five, have a great day, sent these confident kids into the classroom to have fun. And the parents who like insisted on kind of holding on to the child and they're in tears in front of the child and stuff, have these kids who were like really kind of struggling with the experience too. Now, that's not 100% of the time. But I just looked around and thought, okay, I have learned something today. (laughs) You know, on Jane's first day of kindergarten, I have learned that this is Jane's day and it's my day too, but my day doesn't need to take place in front of her. Like if I didn't really feel emotional about it, but if I had, I thought like I should, I should uh, slow that down and with her celebrate this new chapter of her life and do whatever processing I need to do on my own for that. Yeah, I will say that even though I talk about this a lot on the podcast because it's my safe space, like I don't do a lot of this. Like I'm super into independent because I always tell people like kids are sort of like animals, like puppies, babies are the same, like they can smell your fear or your lack of confidence. And so if you introduce them to an environment in which you are emotionally wrought, like they will definitely pick up on that. So I don't have, I've never had a, um, a big beyond the just normal developmental separation anxiety around two or three. But again, I don't have, I don't, I've never had to come get a child because I had so much anxiety of me leaving. Like I just drop them off and they're like, cool. And then you walk out the door and then they're totally over it. I'm just sort of the normal, like as I do, I just, I I treat it. Mommy always comes back. I'll see you later. Have a good time. I also do not sneak out though either. Right, right. Totally agree. I'm opposed to that as well. I don't see. I don't think that's a fair thing to do to a little person who's not totally oriented into the world to be like, I'm going to sneak out on you. I don't like any lying to kids. I don't like any kind of deception, whether it's making up a reason that they can't have something or I, mm-hmm. I just I don't like any of that. I think now I will distract like a champ. Like I'll be like, <laughs> love you later. Have a good time. See you later. Bye. Oh, by the way, your brother's watching this. Yeah. And they'll be like, oh, OK. You know, like I will distract like a champ. I got no problem with distraction, but I do not sneak out. Agreed. Well, thank you all for your commemorations. Please keep them coming. It's a delightful part of doing The Nuanced Life now. I almost feel like it could overtake the rest of the show, which would make me sad because I think it's amazing. But we are going to move on now to listener feedback on other topics. So we got a lot of listener feedback about our discussion of friends being there for each other in moments of grief or trauma or transition. And... I'm just finished Rachel Held Evans' new book, Inspired. I, I think this is going to become a normal part of the show for the next few weeks. I also read a section of the book on the pantsuit pol- on pantsuit politics this week, so we'll just do. A, this is the new normal section of our both of our podcasts, at which Sarah reads aloud from Rachel Held Evans' new book because that's so good. But she has this amazing section on wisdom stories, and she talks in depth about Job, who, for those of you who did not grow up in a Christian background, Job was. It's a weird story. Like God makes a deal with the devil that no matter what suffering the devil puts Job under, he will not um, like curse God or break faith with God. But there's also this really interesting um, section in which um, three of Job's basically friends come around and try to make him feel better in truly, truly terrible ways. And so she talks a lot about their reaction to his grief. And then she has this really great section that I wanted to read about friends and, and grief. She says, arguably, these verses imply pro tip too. When your friend is sitting in a heap of ashes, grieving the loss of his family and scratching his diseased skin with a shard of broken pottery, it's time to be silent. It's a time to listen and grieve. German Jewish philosopher Theodore Adorno once said, 
To let suffering speak is the condition of all truth. If the Bible's war stories reveal the perils of letting God's children tell the story, then the Bible's wisdom stories uncover the beauty of it, the necessity. In the paradox of Job, the vulnerability of the Psalms, and the angst of Ecclesiastes, God's children are invited into the whirlwind to cry out and question, to demand and debate, to consider the big questions of life without resting in easy answers. The Bible reflects the complexity and diversity of the human experience with all its joys and sorrows. And in the story of Job, it's not the learned theologians who geek at glory, but the man who said with candor and courage, I desire to argue with God. I just thought that was so beautiful and such a good um, way to think through how we respond to each other in moments when our friends need them, that sometimes it's just about bearing witness and that that's where real truth can come because there isn't one right answer to grief and there isn't one way to grieve and there isn't one way to comfort. And I just thought that was really beautiful. We got a lot of messages sort of in that vein of here's here's what you do. You don't say, what can I do? You do something. One of our mm-hmm. listeners talked about how she saw that a friend was having a really difficult time on Facebook. She hadn't seen this person in a while. She lived in a different state, but she reached out and found out what was going on and said, I'm going to come to your house. And she just showed up at her house and cooked meals and cleaned and was there to just ease the time for this friend so they could focus on what was going on. And we got this message from Liz as well about how grief is an upper level course in empathy and humanity, which I thought was so well said. And she said, you learn so much about sadness and loss and how to be kind, how to be with people as they process very hard feelings of loss and finality. She said that she told all of her friends who apologized to her as they lost their parents for not being very good friends to her when her father died, that they'd be learning the most unwelcome lessons in wisdom through that grief. And she said, it was Then that I began to understand the asymmetric nature of a lot of relationships. People know what they know, and you can't resent them for not understanding what you're going through. If you are lucky, you have friends who understand, and as you get older, you realize more and more people walk through life with sorrow and sadness and have learned through life experience how to be there for others. I'd rather be a lot less wise and have my dad around, but instead I got volumes of wisdom and empathy, and I honor my dad by embracing his final generous gift by passing it along to others that's so beautiful so beautiful there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I really like the way she describes grief, too. She says, grief sometimes felt like a kind of derangement. I was obsessed with the idea of having a dream where he called me on the phone to let me know he was okay. My husband received a great job offer back in my hometown, but I was afraid to move because I worried that my dad wouldn't know where to find me. I would look for him in large crowds of people, hoping to get a glimpse of him. I would see messages from him on license plates and in cigar smoke and music. Let me be clear, I am not a woo-woo person, so these sorts of thoughts, what Joan Didion named magical thinking, were very difficult to process. And I think that that is such a beautiful way to describe. Side note, A Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Denny is probably my favorite book on grief ever written. It is such an amazing text. And it's she does. She talks about the same thing. Like you just get caught up in all these weird thoughts and these weird processes that you can't quite explain. And so having someone there who will just witness, who will just listen and who will hold your hand and be a – be a kind, empathetic presence as you just, you know, put more minutes behind you. You know, you just got it. Sometimes it's minutes, sometimes it's hours, sometimes it's days, but you just put more behind you as you move forward. And having people who will just witness and be there through that is indispensable. And also people who just take responsibility to be in it with you. I had an interesting conversation about a a woman whose two good friends observed that she was going through a tough time and just came to her one day and said, there's a 5K at the end of this year. We're all going to do it together. And here's our plan. Mm. And that was something that was just not on her radar at all. And she said, you know, I can't overstate how meaningful that was to me. And she said it was in kind of a tough love way. 
But but the love was apparent because they didn't say you're going to do this, right? They said we're going to do it together. And that was a a way that had some consistency and purpose that kept them intentionally just being there with and for her. And I loved that. And I've been thinking a lot since then about what are things like that. I've really been trying to catch myself because I find myself often saying, let me know if I can do anything. I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. you. And I'm really trying to come up with what is a thing I can do. I love to bring food. It's just the Southerner in me. I just love to bring food. Now, sometimes the food can become a burden. Let's be real. Pro tip. If you are setting up a meal train for somebody, make it every other day because there's so much food. It starts to become overwhelming at a certain point. I also have have sent like house cleaners to people's homes. Mm-hmm. I think that's super helpful because a lot of the professional services in particular will do laundry, which is the biggest key. thing. I've, the biggest thing. I've also sent some of my favorite books on grief. I've sent Joan Didion's Your Magical Thinking. I often send that one and um, When Bad Things Happen to Good People to people who've gone through tragedies, just be like, just have it, you know, it's not like, oh, you should read this book. Definitely a grieving person, take time out and get on Amazon. So I just send it to them. They can read it or they can't. It doesn't really matter to me. I also like to do things that show people that I maybe see an angle that gets missed. Like Mm. whenever someone um, loses someone close to them, I try to wait like six months and then send a card and and just note that I I get that a lot of the immediate support is gone and the grief isn't Mm -hmm. and I'm still thinking Mm -hmm. about you. When people close to me have babies, I try to give them um, take care of yourself after the birth packages. So I'll do like baskets of witch hazel and gauze and... Tylenol and just things that you need when you're Epsom salt, you know, when you're recovering yeah. from giving birth that nobody wants to talk about or really mm-hmm. deal with because it becomes all about the baby. But the truth is, like, it needs to be all about you, too, for quite some time. Um, and so I try to put together things like that. You know, there are just so many ways that I think if we paused for a second and thought about what what would this be like, we could come up with some pretty good ideas. I'll tell you something that I offer pretty often and no one ever takes me up on is I'm happy for your children to just come hang out here if you need some time to yourself. Yeah. And it it makes me realize that I think if we want more of this kind of kindness, we also have to accept it when yeah. it's offered. I think another thing that I, I do a lot when I talk of talk to friends who have recently experienced um, trauma or in the middle of grief is I also sort of try to provide a space for anger and humor because that is sometimes my preferred mode of communication. So when people get bad diagnosis or terrible things, sometimes I just say, I'm sorry, that fucking sucks. Mm -hmm. And just using the F word is sometimes exactly what people need to do. They need to be angry. And sometimes we don't allow grieving or traumatized people to just be pissed off at what happened to them or to even see the truly dark humor in some things that have happened to them. And just being the person who's like, there is, I've said this to friends, like there is nothing you can say to me that will shock me or just that I will judge you for, like whatever dark, horrible, terrible thought, if you need a place to say it and know that that that, that person will let it roll right off their back, I'm your girl. Because that to me, like I just, I don't have a lot of that instinct to, it's, I'm, not a, it's, I'm an optimist, but like in moments like that, like I just, I don't think there's any need to clean, it, clean up or sanitize it or make everybody like brave and loving and awesome. Like sometimes people just need to be, pissed off. You know what I mean? And I think that allowing a space for that is really helpful as well to some people. And I think I think the worst thing we can do is try to be a walking Hallmark card. Mm -hmm. When you don't like we just need to. If a person chooses to take inspiration from their experience and to approach it really positively, then I think we embrace that. But that is their decision. It is not ours to try to guide someone in that direction, I don't think. I think as friends, it is not your work to try to turn someone in that direction. It's just your work to be there with whatever they're making of the situation that they're in. Yep. Just to let them 
tell their story. And I think sometimes, you know, again, new favorite book, Rachel Held Evans Inspired. She talks about like there's really interesting studies that people experiencing trauma when they can find sort of a bigger purpose or they can craft a narrative or a story at which something not necessarily that there was a reason, that's not the same thing, but that there um there is a overarching story or there is something to be taken from the experience. Um, that they that that is a very positive thing for human beings to be able to do. And I think there's a way to help people to witness that um, without, like you said, turning into a Hallmark card. It's hard. It's hard because they might do it in a way you wouldn't. And I think that's another thing to always remember. One of the best ex- things I ever learned in college is when I was being trained as a rape crisis counselor, which is, you know, someone in a crisis might not act logically. That's why it's a crisis. Like they might not react the way that you think they should or the way you think you would, but you're not in the crisis. So you don't know. That's probably a good transition to a question that we got um, in response to our conversation about how some friendships are for a season. And sometimes people introduce an element of toxicity in your life and you just need some distance. Um, The question was, like, what do we owe to each other? So if you have a person in your life who's in crisis and you're also arriving at the conclusion that this relationship just isn't good for you, what what do we owe each other in that circumstance? And when and how do you make a decision that that this person can't be part of your life anymore? I think that's a really hard question. I think it is. I mean, I think sort of for me going back to even sort of the same way I feel about kids, like I don't ghost. I'm just not a person that is there's I can name like one scenario in which I truly got ghosted on a toxic person. Um, I feel for myself like it's very important. And but now and, and Beth might disagree with me on this. Now I'll do it in an email. I don't have to talk to the person in person. <laughs> I will do it in an email and just say, like, this is where I'm at. This is why I can't do this with you anymore. And I just wanted you to know that, like, we're done, basically. And I haven't had to do that very often, but I have done that. I can't think of a lot of circumstances in which I felt like something bad happened. And because of that, the relationship was over. That probably means that I have unintentionally ghosted a lot because it felt natural to me. You know, it felt Mm -hmm. obvious. I think that... For me, the process, I I never want to end a friendship because a person is in crisis, ever. Yeah. I don't want to be that kind of person. What has occurred to me with a very small number of relationships is that the person that I care about is always going to be in crisis. That there is never going to be Mm. a normal day. Right. That there is never going to be an upside, not of the friendship even, but just for this person. You know, that for me, what gets exhausting is a person who chooses constantly to be in a state of crisis and keeps everything at an 11 and who can't get through any experience or day without seeing the possibility of crisis in it and that kind of drama is just I I don't have space in my life to be a good friend to a person like that you know and and I just can't personally withstand it and so for me it's never about like oh this person is in a particular crisis I can't handle that I'm gonna walk away it's over time I just I just don't want to fight fires anymore, you know, and that's what that's all a relationship seems to be. And you know what? That sucks because now I'm just another data point confirming that person's suspicions that everyone in the world is out to get them and everything's horrible. Right. And I don't want to be that. And so I think that line where you start to just take care of yourself is a thin one and a difficult one and probably something you've got to evaluate based on the entire history of the relationship and, you know, a whole bunch of factors. But I, I think it's a really hard question. Yeah, I think it is. And it's going to change depending on the person and the situation, obviously. But, you know, I, I think there is a certain point in which you have to um, prior to prioritize yourself and your own boundaries because you being a part of the drama and being traumatized is not serving anyone and most certainly not serving the person. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's hard. I think, th- you know what, I think in terms of what we owe each other, the first question is, is this person safe? 
Mm. Right. Are they going to harm themselves? Are they going to harm somebody else? And I think that we all have the obligation to evaluate that to the best of our ability and take appropriate action if there is appropriate action to be taken. Beyond that, I think if we are going to exit a relationship, our obligation is to do that lovingly. Right. And and that can be through the way we communicate with the other person. It can also just be the intention that we're sending out with that person. You know, something that I have tried to do as an adult is look back on every ended relationship in my life and really wish that person well from a sincere place. Hmm. That just releases a whole lot of ugliness that we kind of hold on to. And that ugliness gets uglier with time, right? Because it just kind of metastasizes or something. So deliberately going back and saying, I really hope this person is happy and being able to mean that, I think there's like a physical energy around that. I love that expression about like holding a grudge is like taking poison and expecting somebody else to get sick. Mm-hmm. Like I think that I love that expression. I think it's so true. Like no, whatever you decide to do, holding resentment towards that person ain't hurting them. That's Not hurting right. them one little bit. Not even a little bit. We wanted to share another message we got from Amy. She said, closing the loop on gender disappointment. I love Sarah's feedback the other day about the best response she ever got on gender slash sex, which was, I can't remember if I shared this on the show or in social media, but when I was pregnant with Felix, who was my third son, I was walking through um, Home Depot with a boy in each hand and a big old belly. And one of the ladies at Home Depot looked at me and smiled and said, are you being blessed with another boy? And I like burst into tears. It was the nicest thing anyone ever said to me when I was pregnant with Felix in particular, as opposed to, oh, are you getting a girl? And then I get to say, no, thank you for asking. She said, I'm absolutely going to keep in mind when talking to, friend, talking to friends with new babies. It was interesting to me hearing what Sarah said about gender reveal parties and not being disappointed. That's actually the reason I didn't find out sex from with any of mine. I never wanted to be sad about the beautiful gift of a baby. I felt if I heard the sex and I had time to brood on it, I could find reasons to be disappointed. On the other hand, when the doctor joyfully shouted the sex as they placed the beautiful baby on my chest, I felt no disappointment and only deep happiness at meeting this new little person. Not for everyone, but perfect for me. She said, I also wanted to add to your conversation on friendship. I always talk about there are friends for a reason, friends for a season, and friends for a lifetime. I forgot where I heard this, but I use it all the time. It helps me when you look back to appreciate and be grateful for people in whatever role they were meant to play in your life. For example, I have some college friends who are just such important parts of my life, but we've lost touch as different choices and life experiences have taken us different ways. They are such perfect friends for that season. Or I think of my friend Allison. We both worked at a place we hated and would grab lunch or drinks after work to discuss at length interviews and looking for new jobs. We both left the company within weeks of each other and almost immediately lost touch. She was definitely a friend for a reason, but again, so critical in that moment. I just think that framework is so helpful in understanding the role of different friendships in our lives and not being angry if they fade. I love that. Another message on gender disappointment we got from Deb, who I used to work with. She said, I've been binge listening to The Nuanced Life and I'm loving it. I used to work with Beth at, quote, the law firm. <laughs> and I find her view on before on the before and after of her life extremely interesting. I'm writing in regard to Sarah's story on your gender disappointment podcast. I have a daughter and a son who are now grown and have five children between them. I love both my kids, of course. But I must say there is validity to Sarah's take on having a daughter. I used to hate it when my friends who are moms of only boys would say how wild many girls are and that they were happy they did not have girls. We have to quit stereotyping our kids. My son and I are close and I'm close with my daughter-in-law too. My relationship with my daughter is a totally different one. We are true friends and enjoy each other, not just because we are related. She also happens to live a mile from me while my son lives on the other side of town. That being said, I think each relationship with your children is unique. You can be as close with a son as a daughter. It takes work and understanding that he may have a wife and take that into consideration. Don't your, your feelings hurt if you feel you're a number two. After 10 years, I actually talk more with my daughter-in-law than my son. Perhaps Sarah, you and your future daughter-in-laws can share the feminine vibe. Your feelings are valid, and I know that doesn't mean you don't love your three boys. Love your podcast. Thanks. I think your feelings are valid would just be like a good thing for all of us to maybe put on a little card and carry around with us everywhere. (laughs) Your feelings are valid. Yeah. It is. It's very helpful to hear that. Although I found her message hard. It's hard. Even though I want people to be like, you're right, this is different. When people are like, oh, yeah, it is different. I'm just kind of want to cry inside. But that's okay. My feelings are valid. Your feelings are valid. Also, you have three really different boys. And they're probably going to have three really different relationships with you, just as they would have if you had a daughter in the mix, too. Right? They just have their own personalities. And they're going to make their own choices. And all of them are going to love you to pieces. I sure hope so. I will. (laughs) So finally, I thought we would share a message from Bumika. I hope I am saying your name correctly, Bumika. 
tell me if I'm not and we will correct it. She wanted to share an article that she read and connected with her. She said, being an immigrant to this country and a woman of color, I hold my financial independence and my achievements sacred as they are hard won by me and my family. I've been working in the financial industry for 11 years and have been with the same employer for that duration. I am on what the firm calls partner track. In the past couple of years, as my family has grown with two beautiful kids, I have often wondered what I like about my job. Is this job my passion? Or is it that it affords me the financial independence that my parents craved and instilled in me at a young age? This article brings up some very important points about finding your calling or your passion versus doing a job for the more boring reasons of paying the bills. I enjoy my job. There are aspects of the job that are truly fulfilling, but it is hard work with sacrifices, mainly as it concerns a demanding workload while managing kids and the housework. But I've never entertained an idea of quitting. Yes, my spouse makes more money, and yes, I could stay home, but it never entered my mind to even consider this option. I value contributing to our family economically. I value my professional achievements. I want to break the glass ceiling at work. I want my kids to see both parents that enjoy their professional careers. This article had me thinking of a lot of women that I know in my personal and professional life and thought you would find it interesting. I know you ladies have talked about having high expectations from our spouses and children on the podcast before. I think it is also ludicrous how we expect our jobs to fulfill our souls and our bank accounts. It's a tall ask. And then she links to a piece from The Atlantic called When Love What You Do Pushes Women to quit. I think it's Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think we asked when she said how we expect our jobs to fill our soul and our bank account. And I was thinking, yeah, we expect our kids to become our reason for living. And we expect our spouses to meet every emotional need. I have high expectations for everything around this joint. We do. And I think that it is not, not an either or. I don't think it is wrong. I just think we're wired differently. I think that's what I want to say. I think we have, I think there are those of us who on a deep level need the work that we do every day to fill some needs beyond financial needs. And then I think there are people who are very good at finding things outside of that work to fill those needs right? Who, who do the job. I mean, my husband is like this. He can just do his job as a job, do it very well, but not ever be emotionally attached to it or place his identity in it the way that I always have. And I just think we're different in that way. And it's okay to be both. And I don't think that's gendered. I think some women are very motivated to have a sense of security for themselves financially, no matter what happens, to prove their um, ability within different workplaces. I mean, there are, there's a whole list of reasons. I tried to be that woman, you know, because I, I value those things, too. And I really tried to kind of be on the path that Bumika is on. It's just not how I'm wired. But I don't think that one one wiring is superior to another. You don't think it's a gendered a little bit in that I think there's this undercurrent for women of I think they hear a little bit more of like you better love what you do like it needs to be your passion um one because I just think there is a more of emotional uh sort of framework tied to everything women do and I do think there's a sort of undercurrent particularly from mothers of like it better be good enough to keep you from your kids. Like, it, it better be really important. You better really love it. It just better be your passion, or else why would you be leaving your kids? You don't think there's some of that undercurrent of that? I don't feel like men get that as much. I think there are a million gendered undercurrents to the way that we work. I, I think what I was trying to say is I feel like sometimes it's easy to say, oh, well, men can approach work as just work to make money, and women have to be fulfilled by it because otherwise they should be with their kids. I think there are absolutely both men and women there are men who really want work to be their passion too, right? And there yeah. are women who really want that financial security as well or are driven for other reasons. Um, and so I just think we should try as much as possible to respect where people are on that regardless of gender. 
All right. Well, thank you for joining us for another Feedback Palooza. Next up, we're going to share something to leave you inspired for the rest of your week. I thought a nice way to end this week would be by sharing a post from Wendy Atterbury that appeared on HuffPo a couple of years ago called Showing Up, the Single Most Important Thing a Friend Can Do. As an advice columnist, I receive lots of letters from people about the trouble they have making and keeping friends as adults. As I get older, I'll be 38 in a few days, I've noticed several things about friendships. They're harder to make and keep as your life fills with more responsibilities. Careers, spouses and partners, kids, aging parents, aging bodies that need more maintenance and mounting bills, to name a few. Friends' support is more important as your life fills with more demands, challenges, and successes to celebrate. The best friends aren't necessarily the ones you've known the longest or have the most fun partying with, but are the ones who show up. Showing up is the single most important thing you can do as a friend. Show up for film premieres and plays and races and weddings. Show up for your designer friend's fashion show and your artist friend's gallery opening and the dinner to celebrate your friend finally getting her Ph.D., Go to baby showers, even though they can be kind of a drag. Better yet, offer to throw one because you love your friend and this is a big deal. Go to your friend's mother's memorial, even though it's a two-hour drive away and it will eat up half your weekend. Go to retirement parties and milestone birthday parties and parties celebrating the end of a nasty divorce. Offer to pet sit or babysit or house sit. Cook casseroles or pick up some takeout and coo over new babies who have just arrived home from the hospital. Drive to airports and weddings and reunions. Drive your friend to her chemo appointment and sit with her afterward and talk to her about whatever she wants to talk about. Show up. Show up. We all have days when the weight of our responsibilities is enough to deal with, and it's a challenge to summon the energy to meet one more demand, to show up, even for something like celebrating a friend's success. But it's those moments that matter the most. It's showing up for that kind of stuff that solidifies a friendship and increases the odds of someone showing up for you when it's your turn to celebrate or mourn or hope against hope. Because it will be your turn eventually, and you will wish there was someone there for you. For every good friend you have or good friend you want or casual friend you'd like to be closer with, budget enough of yourself to show up when it's necessary. If there's only so much of yourself to budget— or you have people who require more than you're willing to give, then whittle your friends down to a manageable amount, manageable for you, so that you have the time and energy to maintain quality friendships. Quality is better than quantity, and resentment is the fastest deal breaker in friendships. So ditch the friends you resent, or the ones whose resentment of you is making life harder. Another thing I've learned about friendship is that you will often be surprised by who shows up for you and who doesn't. Sometimes the people you show up and show up and show up for let you down. And sometimes they show up and show up and show up for you and you let them down. And sometimes the people you've blown off or that you would blow off if given the opportunity are the first to show up for you. Mm. The key to long-lasting friendships, I think, is to weed out the ones who keep letting you down, not just once, but over and over, and to hang on to those who keep showing up as long as they are people whose company you enjoy. The key to long-lasting friendships, particularly for the introverts who guard their personal time like it's the last Twinkie on Earth, is to say (laughs) no to enough things that don't matter so that you have the energy and time to say yes to the stuff that does matter. Quality is better than quantity. Be clear to your friends when stuff really matters. Obviously, you would hope most people would know things like a wedding matters or a close loved one's funeral matters or a milestone birthday party matters, but other things that maybe aren't as universally meaningful or important can be overlooked, and that's when feelings are hurt and friendships are strained. So make things easier on your friends by telling them when something is important to you, and if they still don't show up and they don't show up and they don't show up, then MOA, move on already, because life is too short to keep friends around just because you go back a long way and partied together when overall were trendy the first time around. I love that so much. I think that is something I've definitely lived my life for. I went to two first birthday this weekend and my husband tried to back out at one point. I was like, oh no, no. First birthdays are important. We're all going. I also have to just add, I think the best part about that is when you when it's important to you for your friends to show up, you should just say so. I spent a lot of time in my 20s like wanting people to show up, but not asking them to show up because they were important to me and then resenting them when they didn't. When I was recently in the Made My Community Theater premiere in Paducah, I like just told my friends straight up, this is really important to me. If you do not come, it will hurt my feelings. 
<laughs> and I think it served me well because a lot of people showed up. I wrote them all individual thank you notes for showing up. And I didn't spend any time feeling hurt because people didn't prioritize it because I said, hey, it's important to me. And so my friend showed up and it was so awesome. So I would add to that amazing piece to also tell people when it's important for them to show up for you. You're really good at that and teaching me a lot in that way. I struggle with this because I do guard my time like the last Twinkie on Earth. That really stood out to me. (laughs) Um, And I am trying to learn that it is always worth it to go to breakfast or lunch or someone's house on the weekend to invite people to my house. I think we don't do enough of that anymore. You know, just come have dinner in our home. I'm also just a weirdo. I like baby showers. If there's cake, I'm going to have a good time. I'm just going to be honest. Like, I'm not that everybody's like, oh, baby shower. I'm like, what's wrong with a baby shower? It's like cute stuff. You get to eat cake. The food's always really good. Like, but maybe I just, I'm cut from a different cloth when it comes to things like that because I've always really, I've always really enjoyed them. I think part of it was like being an only child. So I was never being pulled away from something. I was always getting to go to an adult thing and like be included. And so that's why I always love events like that. So invite me to a baby shower. I'll be there, y'all. First birthdays and baby showers. I show up. I scrolled past an Instagram post a couple days ago. I can't remember who it was from and said, a large group of people means no. And I thought, that is how I feel very often. And I'm really trying to get better at that because I do think the point here is well taken. That Mm -hmm. as much as we're tempted, especially people like me as introverts, to kind of manage our relationships through a handful of beautiful interactions with a whole lot of lull in between – that is just not the it stuff doesn't work that, like that. that supporting no. people, like doing life with people is made of, you know, and nope. we need more people to do life with. Um, and so that that's a goal for me. Well, clearly it was a very good inspiration for them the show because it sparked a lot more discussions. <laughs> so thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuance Life. This week on Pantsuit Politics, we started our 9-11 series with the events of the day itself. And so if you're interested in any conversation surrounding 9-11, that's where it starts. We are going to pick up the conversation next week on The Nuanced Life and talk about the ways that our national grief and trauma really went unrecognized and undirected. So that will be next week on The Nuanced Life. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Nuance Life is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. The Nuance Life is listener supported. For $5 a month, you'll receive an extra episode of The Nuance Life at patreon.com slash The Nuance Life. You can connect with us on our website, thenuancelife.com, and follow us on Instagram.